0: It's probably one of the most well-known aspects of the Nativity story. Even people who don't follow Jesus know about the wise men. But just what do we know about these men and the mysterious star that they saw? Well, from what we can derive from history, God aligned planets and people in a breathtaking display of foreknowledge, planning, and wisdom to bring these men to this baby. And heaven brought kings to their knees to worship the king of all kings. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising, and we've come to worship him. Matthew 2 tells us about the story of the Magi. These wise men first appeared in the 7th century BC as a tribe in the Median nation of eastern Mesopotamia. They practiced the occult, they included sorcery, and became particularly skilled in astronomy and astrology, both the study and the worship of stars. They were noted especially for their ability to interpret dreams. They were monotheistic, though not the one true god. They did believe in a cosmic struggle between good and evil. Because they believed in a singular god and a cosmic battle between good and evil, they followed the Persian religious leader Zoroaster in the 6th century BC. These men excelled in the sciences, learning agriculture, mathematics, And history. Consequently, their political and religious influence grew in the Persian and Babylonian empires. They were often referred to as the wise men. No king was crowned in Persia and Babylon without learning their ways and being approved by them. In Jeremiah 39, the priest of these magi is present with Nebuchadnezzar when he attacks and conquers Judah. These magi were among the highest officials in Babylon. When God gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream, these wise men are called upon to interpret it. But there's one problem. They can't. Only a young Jewish boy, one of the captives brought from Palestine, can solve the dream. There's a boy named Daniel. Because of this, Daniel chapter 2 verse 48 tells us that he was appointed ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Because Daniel pleaded for their lives, chapter 2 verse 24, these men had great respect for Daniel's character and abilities. Daniel is himself given a dream in Daniel 9 that says that from the time of the commission to rebuild Jerusalem, something that happens with King Darius at the beginning of Ezra, until the time of Jesus, Jesus' birth, there will be 483 years. A truth, no doubt, Daniel would have passed on to these wise men. So when a star arises at just the right time, a star that Numbers 24, 17 promised would come, that verse reads, "A star will come from Jacob, and a sceptre will arise from Israel. He will smash the forehead of Moab and strike down all the Shethites. The writings of Daniel have heavily influenced these men; they likely have studied all the writings of Daniel, and they know the time around which this Messiah, this leader of the world, is to come. They've heard about the star that was to welcome his entrance. They study the night sky and understand how the stars work. So when the star appears, they know exactly what it means. But just what do we know about this star? It was used by God to lead these men to this king that would save the world. God could have created a new star for this purpose. He's certainly powerful enough to do this. Since he created the billion trillion stars in the observable universe at this very moment, and he determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name, Psalm 147.4. Recent evidence and computer modeling suggest that at or near the time of Jesus' birth, the star Regulus came into alignment with the planet Mercury, which would have created a super bright star in the night sky, one that the wise men could see in the east. If that's the case, Regulus is the brightest star of the constellation Leo, and Mercury is known as the king's planet. The convergence would mean that the kingly star, the scepter, had come into alignment with the lion constellation to point the way for the king of kings, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now put all of this together. God was literally moving heaven and earth, thousands of years before these wise men he aligned these orbits so that these men could see this star the star that had been first spoken of about 400 to 500 years earlier from one jewish captive who had been raised up in the foreign government this jewish captive could interpret dreams that men of their ilk could not He saved their lives and saw visions that they were seeking to interpret. And right on time, they could see the star that led them to the tiny baby that was to become the rightful king of the Jews. This timeline, to me, is just astounding. Now following this miracle, the story shifts to Jesus' plight to Egypt in verses 13-15. through When the wise men arrived on the scene after God's providential direction that included the convergence of planets and constellations, a young Hebrew boy, visions, a Babylonian captivity, wise men, and not one but two wicked kings, no one knew where the king of the Jews was. How sad is it that those wise men from the east, following a tradition taught to their forefathers hundreds of years earlier, knew more about the Messiah that was to be born than the Jewish captives down the street. The only king of the Jews that they knew about was the self-proclaimed king of the Jews, Herod. And Herod was a title that had been given by the Senate in 37 B.C. And for the last 32 years, this man had been the undisputed king of the Jews. So when noblemen from the east arrived looking for a child to be born king of the Jews, Herod would have none of it. He commissions the wise men to find the child and report back to him, a command they ignore after being warned in a dream, something that they were accustomed to interpreting. Herod was not to be outsmarted, though, so he planned what's called the Massacre of the Innocents, that's what Josephus called it, and they would have killed the male children two years old and younger in and around the city of Bethlehem. Now, how could Herod do this? Well, Herod was, by the end of his life, intensely paranoid. He had ten wives, and each of those women produced sons, princes all scheming for his politically unstable kingdom. As Dr. Paul Meyer puts it, if there weren't two or three collateral plots taking place before they had orange juice in the morning, you knew that something was wrong. Herod was so paranoid that he killed three of his sons for conspiring to take his throne. He then had his wife killed, his mother-in-law killed, and several cousins and uncles killed. Caesar Augustus himself quite famously said of Herod that he would rather be Herod's pig than his son. At the time of his death, Herod rounded up thousands of Jewish leaders and imprisoned them in the Hippodrome so that, they, so that when he died, the instructions were to slaughter the Jewish leaders so that the Jews would mourn on the day of his death. He knew that the Jews hated him, and they would rejoice when he died, so he gave them something to weep over. Now this paranoia is the craziness that surrounded the actual king of the Jews' birth. No wonder the angel told Mary and Joseph to flee from Bethlehem to Egypt. But that wasn't the only reason to run. Because God had spoken to the prophet Hosea in Hosea 11, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Such a prophecy was of critical importance. It was no accident that Jesus' path emulates the history of the Jewish people. You see, the Exodus was a profound influence on Jewish history and culture. The people revered Moses as their savior. He was their deliverer and their rescuer. The law that he wrote down on the mountain in the desert was the centerpiece of their whole society. It was not some sideline event. And they viewed it as the formative moment in the life of their nation. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, Matthew wants us to see the pattern of Jesus coming and how he, like Moses, was their true deliverer. He had not come to rescue them from slavery physically but had come to once and for all rescue them from their slavery to the law spiritually. Their Deliverer had come. This Messiah was better than the first Moses. Notice the pattern by which Matthew lays out Jesus' coming. Now Jacob, also known as Israel, and his descendants had been forced to travel from their homeland to Egypt because of a famine to be saved. They are held in captivity there for 400 years until Moses comes and delivers them out of Egypt. They pass through the waters of the Red Sea, and then they go into the wilderness, where they spend 40 years. And During those years, Moses went up to the mountain in the wilderness and gave them the law, which became the Jewish society's rule and practice. This pericope is born out in Jesus' life. He leaves Bethlehem, the house of bread, and is forced to flee for his life in Egypt. Out of Egypt he returns and upon growing up passes through the waters of baptism. He then fasts in the wilderness for forty days. And after those days he ascends up the mountain and teaches them the Sermon on the Mount. God's basic recipe for a godly society. So, what do we learn from all of this? Well, First of all, when we consider the wise men, God sees us long before we see him. For hundreds, thousands of years, God moved planets and stars into alignment. He was raising up wise men through unconventional means to bring kings to the birth of the king of kings. He was punishing sin by carrying away Judah in judgment for their sin, only to raise up a young Jewish boy who could interpret their dreams to set him over all of Babylon and gain the respect of wise men who nearly 500 years later would witness the birth of the Messiah. Number two, God's plans are better than my plans. My plans would have never included captivity and exile. My dreams could have never included sorcerers and stars. My plans would have never included virgins conceiving the incarnate Son of God. My designs never would have seen any of this. If God makes plans, they are always more excellent than mine. So why do I question them? God does things that we can't do. He works so much further down the road than we do. Our plans in recent days, because of the pandemic, have become so transient. Over the last few years, God has taught us some powerful lessons about our ability to do long-range planning. He knows where he is leading us, though. He knows the dangers ahead and providentially leads us to greener pastures, and we should trust that. We shouldn't trust our ability to see what's ahead. Who could have foreseen a pandemic? But we can trust the God who weaves the captivity and the sorcery and the dreams of pagan kings together to inform them that the King of Kings has been born. Thirdly, when God decides, God provides. Even when pagan kings seek to massacre the King of all ages, we see the providential hand of God at work in the most heinous of circumstances. While God was protecting his son in Egypt, he was simultaneously fulfilling prophecy and portraying a picture of a deliverer that had come to be for his people. Such deliverance was planned so far in advance, considering the savage insecurities of a murderous tyrant and the promises made to a languishing prophet, made to a people who had long forgotten them and couldn't even remember them. God is the only one who can do this. At the same time, he was providing the people a greater deliverer than their precious Moses, who, like them, fled to Egypt under duress, who, like them, passed through the waters, who, like them, came out of Egypt into the wilderness, where they utterly were dependent upon every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And like Moses, ascended the hill and gave them the fundamental precept of a kingdom governed by God himself. So Jesus, help us to trust your unlimited plans for us and help us to follow your lead. Thank you, God, for being our deliverer, rescuing us from bondage, guiding us through the water, providing for us in the wilderness, and giving us your word. Help us to see you as our Savior. A savior who keeps his promises even when we forget them. A savior who can save us from tyrants and famine. Rich Mullins' song was right. The lyrics read, Joseph took his wife and her child and they went to Africa to escape the rage of a deadly king. There along the banks of the Nile, Jesus listened to this song that the captive children used to sing. They were singing, My Deliverer is coming. My Deliverer is standing by. Through a dry and thirsty land, water from the Kenyan Heights pours itself out of Lake Sangra's broken heart. There in the Sahara winds, Jesus heard the whole world cry for the healing that would flow from his own scars. The world was singing. Today, for the Read Your Bible podcast. For the show notes to today's episode, please visit readyourbible.info. While you're there, you can listen to past episodes as well as access a host of additional resources designed to help you grow in your faith. It's all there for you at readyourbible.info. That's readyourbible.info. For more information about South Seminole Baptist Church, just go to southseminole.com. Have a great weekend. Join us on Monday as together we help you learn to read your Bible.